Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome back on the show Blake Faulkner. Blake has been on here before. He previously helped us uh, with getting ready with uh, for an LD resolution back earlier this season. Uh, today, Blake's here and going to help us with uh, some of his studies. Uh, Blake is a PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's uh, in the latter stages of that process and looking towards defense. Along the way, Blake has explored an awful lot of ethical theories and frameworks, and today we're going to have a, hopefully a good conversation about different ethicists and what that, how that helps us shape our, our views in the era of COVID-19. Blake, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Blake, before we get into it, uh, catch us up on life. I, I understand uh, there, there's a new Faulkner in your house now. There is. We have little Luke William, who is uh, two months old yesterday. Oh, my goodness. Uh, has, has that changed your life much? A little, yes. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's our first. So, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've did a lot of preparation, but there's only so much you can prepare for. So, yeah, he's, he's wonderful, but... There's a there's a lot that goes into this that that no no parent foresees I don't think so we're, we are adjusting and becoming a family. So. I, I I was on a, a different interview earlier this week and a teacher candidate asked for advice about first year teaching and at least the first thought in my mind was that there's really no way to adequately prepare for being a first year teacher and I, I suspect being a parent is something similar where you you try. You, you educate yourself as much as possible, but really there's there's nothing for it but to kind of go through it one, sta- one day at a time, I assume. Yeah, I'd say it's similar to the first time you're asked to debate or to get up and give a speech after an impromptu amount of time, and you have no idea what's going on, and you just have to do it a few times to figure out what's going on. Unfortunately, with a kid, you don't have the luxury of doing it a couple times beforehand. Uh a dog might be sort of training wheels or a pet would be a good training wheels for a kid. But that's the closest you can get, you know, to a trial run. But, yeah, there's a lot of unpredictability, a lot of chaos. And so, you know, the coronavirus chaos I have been pretty oblivious to um, because I've already been in a lot of personal chaos. So, <laughs> Sure. Well, there we go. Now, do catch us up quickly on, uh, on your dissertation. Uh, do, do you have an elevator pitch version of your dissertation? I do. In fact, that's kind of what you got to do to get a job is to have an elevator pitch for this. Sure. Well, hit us with your elevator pitch. What What's your dissertation? What What has it evolved into? Yeah. So my dissertation is about uh, the term political correctness and incorrectness. And I look at that term and I try to I'm a rhetorician fundamentally. So I like to study how people argue, how people fight politically, how people use language and words in different ways. And so I wanted to know sort of what's behind our use of that word politically incorrect or politically correct. Um, and I basically use Nietzsche to do that. And I argue that essentially it's a trope that we use to um, we enjoy setting traps for one another, essentially, is the upshot of what I'm trying to argue. That it's, it's really not a useful term at all, except it's very useful for giving us a sense of having been wronged. Uh, for having us giving us a sense of political legitimacy because of our suffering, and uh, therefore we can marshal that suffering um, to whatever ends we may want to marshal them. 
That's fascinating. I, I remember uh, Dr. Gamble years ago making an argument, uh, I think something along those lines, that uh, the, the labels right and left in politics are practically useless except how you define the other side. And yeah. uh, that really, But we use those all the time as if they're actually substantively naming the political landscape, when in reality, I simply refer to my political opponents in the more negative light using this terminology. Correct. Yeah. And that's how political correctness and incorrectness works, too. No one ever says that you're politically correct in a nice way. Um, that's always a negative term. And uh, also political political incorrectness is always in a critical posture. It's always being offensive because it wants to mark out the problematic nature of whatever the politically correct is. Well, I'm glad to know you've been you've been using a lot of Nietzsche in there because um, I, I indirectly mentioned you in my philosophy class a couple weeks ago. We uh, we we've been reading Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, and that still to this day is the only main text of Nietzsche that I've like read substantive portions of. Uh, I'm I'm no Nietzschean, and I, I freely confess to my students that I think of myself as a dabbler in philosophy. Uh, so I'm I'm. I don't have immense formal training in philosophy, but I love reading it and helping students understand uh, both the broad strokes of what a philosopher is up to and then the particulars of the text we're reading. And in Genealogy of Morals, the, the question quickly came up about whether or not Nietzsche is being descriptive in this process that he sees, and he thinks that this is how good and evil come about as these sort of terms that the powerful use to inform what the powerless should think of themselves as, and so on. Or is he prescribing what he wants to have happen? And uh, is he saying that we should do this and we need to recover a sort of aristocratic morality? And if I remember, and I hope I didn't misrepresent you, because if I remember correctly, you think Nietzsche is being more descriptive than prescriptive. And I tend to read that and think he is being more – I think he's implicitly prescriptive. I don't think he's explicit about it, but I think he's couching all of this in such terms that he has to be being really – he's prescribing an ideal at the same time as he's describing a historical process. What are your thoughts on all of that? This is exactly the distinction I wanted to start with, so I'm glad you – started here because this is the distinction of that makes ethics basically the distinction between uh what's uh, sort of a pithy way of saying it is the distinction between what is and what ought the is and the ought um or the descriptive as you're saying it is the is or the nature of reality and then the ought which is how things ought to be or the prescriptive area um i think that i do think nietzsche is being descriptive however if we're gonna put this category into his terms he does not believe that there is such a thing uh, as the ought. Uh, he says several times that uh, – and it, this is the kind of the problem of Nietzsche is that it's very difficult to get a sense for his philosophy as a whole from just reading one book or one mm -hmm. set of essays because he's such a fragmented thinker. Um, so often you have to I've, – I've had to read you know, two or three other books and that usually reveals another, another book. Um, in a better way than if I had just read one book by itself. Genealogy is where I started reading Nietzsche, but it became a lot more uh, apparent to me what he was doing after reading The Will to Power or The Twilight of the Idols or really Beyond Good and Evil is kind of the central starting point for Nietzsche's philosophy. So, yeah, I would say he he says many times in other texts and he alludes to it in genealogy that he doesn't think there's such a thing as moral phenomena. 
Um, there is no moral phenomena for him. There is merely uh, moral interpretations of other given of of any given phenomena. So he thinks that basically their their perceptions perspectives uh, are what we're talking about when we're talking about morality. And so when he's describing how morality comes about, I think he is trying to be descriptive. Um, does he want, does he have an imperative? Um, hmm. That's an interesting question. When, when you look at Nietzsche's text and genealogy, he definitely sounds like he likes the, the noble morality more. Um, and I think that's right. I think he, he's a classicist. He's a, he's someone who read the Iliad and got really jazzed about it. Um, <laughs> I, read, I read the Iliad too, and I love it. Um, so I understand the enthusiasm, but I think he definitely sympathizes with it, but he does not believe that we can get back to that Greek heroic, okay. you know, Achilles kind of way of dealing with suffering that he finds admirable. He thinks we're beyond that because the slave morality has dominated us. Um, but he also says things in the genealogy that are very complementary of the slave morality. He says, we'd be altogether too stupid without the slave morality. It's made us much more intelligent, much more clever, much more interesting. Uh, so I think that there, there is a sort of fair analysis you can see in Nietzsche, but he often dips back into mockery and accusation and uh, – uh, lampooning of his opponents. And so he's such a weird stylist that it's it's difficult to see. He's not being a sober, you know, objective description. That's not what he's offering. Uh, but I do think he fundamentally thinks that morality is a phenomena that we need to describe in human behavior. He doesn't really want to tell you how to be ethical. That's not, he doesn't really want to do that because that would mean he believes morality is a thing. Uh, and he doesn't. He thinks it's a way of interpreting reality. That's really interesting. I know part of where I hope we get to today is really contrasting Nietzsche with with everybody who came before him. So he seems to be a pretty critical break in the in the philosophical tradition, especially when it comes to ethics. But he explicitly takes on the concepts and sometimes explicitly the people that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Now, I know we, we started talking about this a couple weeks ago in part because of uh, an Atlantic article. Let me pull that back up real quick. Uh, yeah, about the coronavirus, yeah. Yeah, entitled The Extraordinary Decisions Facing Italian Doctors. Uh, that article was published on March 11th. It's by Yasha Munk, and uh, we'll, we'll put the link in the show description. But part of what caught my eye there was uh, just the fact that the, there are these Italian doctors published a set of ethical guidelines as they're dealing with almost basically wartime conditions and have to decide who gets medical care and who does not. Now, so often these sorts of academic ethical discussions stay in nothing more than conversations in the academy. The, the article uses the classic example of the trolley problem. But then says the guy, the the writer at the bottom says he spent years uh, studying ethical theory, and yet he has nothing to offer to people in this situation. What do you make of that, Blake? As a as as a rhetorician and as someone who has spent time studying ethics, um, what's the connection between ethical study and real life? Well, I mean, this sort of problem could be applied to basically any academic area. I think that. Mere intellectual head knowledge of any subject does not necessarily lead to any kind of competence. 
um, in practice. So I can understand ethical in, in, in the same way that I can understand how to, you know, I can understand the parts of the body in an abstract way in terms of anatomy, but that's quite different from actually dissecting a body. Um, and uh, there's a whole different thing. And in fact, some people find, ah, I can't do this whole medicine thing because when I get into an actual body, I can't handle it. Um, so I think something similar might be happening with ethics is that you can understand the concepts we're going to talk about with, with Mill, with John Stuart Mill, with Thomas Aquinas. You can understand their concepts of morality very easily um, without too much effort, I don't think, or at least with a decent amount of effort. But when you actually have to apply them or you actually have to use them or you have to actually make an ethical decision, that's something altogether different. And if you don't really work hard at connecting your ethical ideas to your ethical decisions, uh, it'll merely it'll just be a nice intellectual project for you. Um, and that's that's a you know, that's the difficulty of connecting intellect with with practice. But I would say everybody has an implicit ethic of some kind. I think what's happening here is we're, we're noticing and your author of this article is noticing that our implicit ethics, i.e. what we do when, when the world falls apart, what our ethics demands us to do is not particularly conscious. We just fall back on whatever our default is. And I would say for most of us, at least in America, our default is probably some form of utilitarianism. I think that's I think that's true and that that's fair. I, it strikes me as very interesting that this really uh, it, it seems that we can sit in a circle and discuss ethics all day long, but then life happens and we actually no matter what we have said in that classroom environment, life shows us what we actually believe about ultimate reality and those beliefs then govern our actions. Uh, yeah. I think it's th- those moments of crisis are very interesting for revealing what. A, an individual, a group, a nation, a world truly does believe about something of this, this magnitude. Now, of course, think, a lot of our ethical theories, uh, they tell us what to do when they almost assume that you have infinite amount of time to sort of decide. That's how these theories are often presented as well. If you just think through each of these theories ahead of time, then you can figure out what the right thing to do is. Um, Kant seems to think that we just have this time to figure out rationally what the imperative will tell us to do. But most ethical situations actually don't work that way. Most ethical situations, you're under a lot of stress and you're probably uh, suffering in some way. And you have to make a decision on limited resources and education. And that that altogether uh, makes the ethical process much more embodied and human than merely intellectual. Now, I think I think you're right about that. And the other thing, uh, at least what I found, I didn't notice this as much the previous time I taught this philosophy and ethics course, but this year it has leapt out at me so strongly that the way I'm approaching this course, now I'm, I'm, I'm not a relativist, but in order to teach this course uh, and, and, <coughs> excuse me, and really show my students these different ethical paradigms, it's almost as if I have to assume that all of these are equal. And we're going to kind of lay every ethical paradigm side by side and assume, okay, given the situation, maybe in this case I'd be a Kantian. Maybe I'd be a utilitarian. Maybe in this kind of situation I'd be an Aristotelian. And it's as if we're sort of by studying these different paradigms, we're building a Frankensteinian monster of ethical frameworks 
Because there's something about the 21st century where it's very difficult in a secular context to say, this is the right way to think about a situation. There are a few I can I can I, I could imagine where I'm like, okay, it's pretty obvious. We're all gonna agree on this one. But when you get the slightest shade of ambiguity, suddenly it seems like we have nothing left but utter relativity in terms of which way we approach a situation. Yeah, you you have described perfectly the sort of problem that Immanuel Kant and many people after him face. A lot of the what's typically in academic circles called the philosophy of liberalism. Hmm. I don't that in our coarse sense that we use liberalism today, but the philosophy of liberalism has always said uh, we're too different from each other to agree about fundamental precepts of morality and ethics and religion. So let's just find these rational principles that we can all agree to so that we don't kill each other. Um, and that's kind of uh, – I think that's what, what we're often faced with in a cacophony of different um, cultures and different – in a pluralistic society often is, is how it's described. In those kind of contexts, we're coming from such different starting points that, yes, there, it is easy to, to fall into a sort of relativist position or to pretend that everybody is equally – uh, valid in their ethical presuppositions, which of course uh, they are not, and I think I think Nietzsche would corroborate us on that too. Well, I was looking at another article today about uh, just how many undergrads are currently enjoying the same spring break that they would have enjoyed without the coronavirus. They're all still at the beach, uh, Alabama, Florida. The beaches are packed. They're happening. Uh, lots of jokes about the only corona I'm going to get is the corona in my hand. And yes. in that moment, you, know, you have such so many people who such great press from this thing. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. But in that moment, I think you see the difference between what people might cognitively think versus what they actually believe. And you, you have to look at those. I used that word embodied earlier. I think it's a great word for that. You have to look at the embodied actions of a person to really know what they think. Well, before we dive into kind of a quick survey of ethicists, um, let's do do our groundwork since this is, of course, a debate podcast, not just a philosophy podcast, though those two do go hand in hand pretty often. Oh, are you there? Oh, yep. I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yep, we're good. All right. Good. Uh, so, uh, Blake, in what way is ethics uh, tied to Lincoln-Douglas debate? How would you how would you connect those two things? Well, I think um, a lot of debate presumes uh, certain ethical frameworks. So it can be kind of confusing. I don't know if uh, Lincoln Douglas uses these terms still, but I remember there was always this distinction between a value proposition and a policy proposition. Um, and so a lot of people told you, oh, when we're doing value arguments, that's when we're doing ethics. And when we're doing policy arguments, we're not doing ethics. Um, but I think, you know, in a, in a Lincoln du typical debate round, you have what are called impacts. Or harms, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. So when you have impacts, usually what the what the debater is doing is that they're telling me, ah, these are the things that we can prove are going to happen or are likely to happen as a result of X policy. Either to tell me these are good things that'll happen, or these are really bad things that will happen. When you assume that a bad thing is bad, you're doing ethics. When you assume that a good thing is beneficial, you're doing ethics. So, I, yeah, I don't think we can – it's very difficult for me to think of debate happening without some sort of ethical underpinning, even though it is often – that people try to 
avoid that at times by using terms like policy or value. No, I think that's right. And there's there's some places it's more explicit. Uh, and it really, uh, I think it also becomes a great place to advance clash in a debate when debaters recognize that different ethical frameworks do not cohere with each other. And then it becomes a matter of convincing the judge which of these frameworks uh, do uh, actually work this way and allow for these arguments. Uh, I think one of my <coughs> favorite arguments to see, uh, well, it's, it's in, in, a, in kind of a worst case scenario sense, when students try to run, uh, they'll they'll try to pair deontology as the va- or, uh, deontology with utilitarianism in some way, and then mm-hmm. when the opponent says no, you cannot do that, I am almost ninety percent ready to give the opponent the vote right then and there because they recognize a duty based ethic cannot go with a consequential consequential framework and and mix. Those are oil and water. Uh, they yeah. both have their place, they have their use, but you can't put them together. Uh, it, I think it's because we live in a in a world that's so impacted by Kant and his descendants. Uh, people like John Rawls is a he's a Kantian political philosopher. Um, our legal framework, our you know way that we address um, wrongs and distributive justice and giving people resources in certain fractions um, based upon their need and their suffering. That's that's often very resonant with people who study Kant. Uh, but we also live in a very utilitarian world that thinks we can predict consequences of our actions and predict the amount of pain or pleasure that we can inflict. Um, and yes, I do think that, strictly speaking, uh, Kant is one of the best critics of utilitarianism ever to exist uh, because he shows very – he calls all of utilitarianism a hypothetical, essentially, a hypothetical imperative. You're, you're presupposing – you know what's going to happen as a result of things you do. And he says you can't do that. Well, that's probably a great point to transition then. Uh, Let's spend a few minutes thinking together about the major ethicist of the Western philosophical tradition. Um, Thought it might work as a good pattern for this. If we kind of, one of us will probably just go back and forth here. We explain kind of the major piece of that philosopher's ethical ethical system, and then see if we can use uh, responding to a uh, hospital with not enough beds and too many patients as a running example to kind of exemplify these different ethical frameworks. Um, so we'll kind of run in the order of Aristotle, Aquinas, Kant, Mill, and then back around to Nietzsche at the end. Uh, I'll start us off with Aristotle, since uh, I honestly don't know Aquinas' ethic nearly enough to to cover that one, so I'm really looking forward to what you're going to give us on, on Aquinas here in a second. Sure. But uh, Aristotle literally kind of, uh, as much as anyone can be said to invent the system of ethics, he kind of does, as he wrote the first book entitled, uh, it gets, gets abbreviated as The Ethics, it's technically the Nicomachean Ethics, and he's literally in that book uh, attempting to lay out a system of good habits for his son that become, over the centuries, it becomes kind of the go-to ethical framework for, uh, goodness, the next 1,500 years or so that really dominated the Greco-Roman world and dominated uh, the medieval Christian world of medieval Europe. And Aristotle's ethical framework, in a nutshell, is not that complicated. Uh, it's, it's based on the idea of the golden mean applied to life situations. Uh, and I'm blanking on the actual name of this. Uh, Blake, help me here. What's the, what's the name of his system? 
Oh, um, virtue ethics yeah. is used the term used to to describe it. Yeah, right, right, right. But and the way <clears throat> virtue ethics work is that you you find the virtue by paying close attention to what is the uh, the extreme and what is the deficient in a in a given ethical scenario. So, uh, and the actual virtue is located right down in the middle. It's the mean between those two extremes. So, the classic example he gives deals with courage, where uh, the the abundance or the excessive action is he calls foolhardiness. It's where a soldier just runs straight towards the enemy. He doesn't have a spear, a sword, or a shield, but he's charging at the enemy very foolishly. He is going to die, and he does not care. He's a foolhardy soldier. Well, your deficient extreme uh, is the idea of the coward, is the one who is in the ranks. They're, they've been ordered to march forward, and the coward just turns and runs. He, has, he just can't do it. The goal of what you want in for the virtue of courage uh, is you want that doctrine of the mean, where in the middle you have the man who is wisely courageous. He knows what he needs to do. He knows why he needs to do it. So he goes and he marches with his units and in the phalanx and he takes up his arms and he fights. He's neither foolhardy nor is he cowardly. Now, for Aristotle, he identifies a variety of virtues, and he doesn't really say, he doesn't really even pretend to give an exhaustive list. What he gives instead is a method for figuring out, in any particular moment, here's what the virtuous action would be. What's the middle ground between these two extremes? All right, Blake, any, anything to add there? Yeah, I would just say, I think the way you started off was was really good, that, uh Aristotle was writing this as a kind of um, – he was accounting for what virtue looked like at the time that he wrote and for his son. And it kind of has this feel – it has this sort of intimate feel of like a practical guide mm-hmm. for people. I think that's why it's been um, so treasured over the ages. Um, but I think a lot of times the he, he even says in the text there are some things that there is no golden mean for. Um, for example, murder. He doesn't think that you can have like the golden mean between like murder and not murder. So like there are different there are certain things that are just bad all the time. Mm-hmm. He also says there are certain things I that think he are, says that also about adultery, if I remember correctly. Like there is no right. like there's no like medium amount of faithfulness to a marriage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he, he 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 qualifies a lot of things. And so I think what you get from Aristotle is a very sort of he sets out a lot of terms and he sets out the terms that actually go directly into Aquinas, like virtue, and he sets out especially the concept of happiness or eudaimonia in Greek, that the ultimate guide, the ultimate goal, the ultimate end for everything in terms of virtue uh, is happiness. And so things like the golden mean are serving that end of happiness, that the reason that we don't want the coward and that we don't want the foolhard is because we end up getting the the we end up getting towards our end of happiness better when we're balanced in that respect. But there are other respects where that balance won't bring about happiness, and so we, the golden mean won't apply. Which is a great point to bring up because the the goal of this kind of virtuous life is not material prosperity necessarily. Uh, It it may help with that, and Aristotle does think that in order to be happy, you need a bare minimum of material prosperity. 
But the goal is to ultimately be able to live a life that, if I remember correctly, he doesn't think you yourself can make this judgment, but that other people after you have died can look back on your life and say, he had a happy life. And that a virtuous life is the most likely way to achieve this eudaimonia. Yeah, he thinks of happiness in terms of self-sufficiency, i.e. it's the thing that if you have it, you don't need anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why it's the ultimate goal because it doesn't serve any other, any other purpose. It's actually a similar thought process that Kant ends up using. He's like, what's it, what, what is good all by itself and nothing else? What's pure goodness? That's kind of what Aristotle's doing, but he arrives at a different conclusion than he thinks that this sort of long lasting satisfaction with life, uh, that's the ultimate end. And when you have that, everything else sort of falls into place. So, Blake, how do you think Aristotle would solve the uh, the Italian doctor's dilemma? Oh, dear. Well, he probably <laughs> would think, ah, they're a bunch of Romans, so who cares? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, I don't I – don't, I mean, so Aristotle is interesting because he, he tells you how to deal with problems. He, he, he talks about – virtue but i don't think he actually gives us an answer to a lot of ethical problems i don't actually think aristotle provides a lot of answers in terms of you know the question of what should i do as an individual um i think he tells you sort of the ultimate goal of everything he gives you a basic sort of what what aquinas would call a general principle of natural law he gives you a general goal for everything but i don't think he gives you he doesn't give you specific answers so you know in this instance of coronavirus, there being a shortage of resources and overabundance of people that need to be on ventilators, people who have lots of respiratory conditions and we can't decide who to treat and who not, um, you know, I'm not, I don't know. You, you might know Aristotle better than I do. I don't know what he would say you should do in this circumstance. I think he might, uh, he might step back and, look at the system that we have here and ask, is this producing eudaimonia? Um, but yeah, in this particular instance, I don't know if he gives us a sort of knee-jerk prescription. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. And I, I um, the only thing that comes to mind that may be helpful here is a passage from uh, from Gadamer. I, I think at this point I, I'm, I, I read Aristotle almost through Gadamer rather than the other way around. But um, Gadamer talks about the idea of, of play and ethics, and he goes back and looks at uh, – this in his book Truth and Method, and he looks at the idea of uh, instead of ethics for Aristotle being like a fixed point and you either hit the mark or you don't, instead he looks almost as if there's like a range of actions that are permissible, and under an Aristotelian framework, anything that fits in that range – would be correct. So if to apply that, I, honestly, I, I don't think Aristotle would necessarily disagree. Uh, he certainly, I think, would think, okay, these Italian doctors who are trying to use the criteria of how many life years do you have left, um, how can we do as fair and objective of this as possible given our limited resources, I think he would see that's a rational decision and therefore a good human action without even trying to say, is it the best action or the worst action? I think he would put it somewhere in between the the field of ethical behavior. So. Yeah, I think that's a fair reading of Aristotle. And Aquinas has a similar sort of allowance for contingency 
in ethics where there isn't necessarily one right decision. There's a, rather a sort of type of decisions or frame for decisions that are valid. Um, I think he probably would differ somewhat with presumptions of what makes a happy society or a happy polis because for him eudaimonia and happiness is conditioned on citizenship um he says explicitly in that account of nicomachean ethics that sort of man is made for a polis or man is made for a city um and so i think he he's coming from a very different set of circumstances in that sense because we don't really think that way anymore at least we don't think of citizenship in terms of that very small sort of city-state Sure. Um, but he also believed, if you read other parts of Aristotle, he believed in definitely that there were natural uh, people who were born to be slaves and there were people who were born to be aristocrats and leaders and there were people who were born to be of a certain station and function. And so I think he probably would have certain answers to who gets treatment and who doesn't that we probably wouldn't like. Oh, I guess that's true because uh, he, he does have some – I know it's always fun to uh, to have students wrestle with Aristotle's concept of natural slaves and natural aristocrats, uh, and and certainly he has some very harsh passages about women that are honestly they're difficult to read in the 21st century and think this is an accurate representation of how he thought about women. So that that mm-hmm. too should we shouldn't skip over that. Yeah, um, he would say something. You know what makes the polis run? Uh, the men. Uh, so. <laughs> If you want maximal happiness within the polis, you might prioritize the treatment of coronavirus patients that are making the polis run. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that part of Aristotle, but that, that's that's interesting there. Well, Blake, take us to Aquinas. What what should we know about Aquinas's uh, ethics? Uh, Aquinas is fascinating, um, and he's probably one of, for for average readers today. I think he's probably the most difficult to read uh, of of people that we that we are reading or talking about today because he writes in a very classic, logical, syllogistic way, even more rigorous than your average debate, I would say. Um, he, he's, a, he's writing to a very technical, what's called a scholastic medieval audience who share a lot of his premises already. And what he's trying to do, ultimately what Aquinas is trying to do, is he's trying to bring Aristotle – who's very new and interesting and and sort of the sexy thinker at the time, who's very controversial in medieval Europe. He's trying to bring Aristotle together with Christianity. He's trying to reconcile them and not only reconcile them, but uh, synthesize and systematize them. And so what he does is he doesn't really say that he's talking about ethics. He says he's talking about law. And what he thinks law is is essentially a uh, pronouncement of a good leader or a rule of some kind that your rational capacity or any rational capacity uh, concludes uh, should be binding on a certain community or Aristotle would probably say a polis. Um, so what he does is he, he has four different types of law. He has eternal law, which is God and God's rational capacity governing the whole universe as his community. And then he has natural law. That's the next tier. And natural law is what humans, it's when humans get to participate in a little sliver of God's eternal law. 
And then there is divine law, which is when God tells you what to do in, say, the Bible or the Ten Commandments or in an explicit command. And then there is human law, which is what most of what we're talking about and most of what other ethicists talk about only. Human law, which is uh, literal uh, – could be literal laws like government governmental laws, um, statutes, your HOA, but also your individual decisions in practical life. Human law for him is when you have to make a, a, a decision in the moment of con- with, with, with lots of factors going. This coronavirus issue, I think, for him would fall squarely under human law, um, but is definitely guided by what he would call general principles in natural law. And, and Aquinas is rightly considered sort of the beginning of natural law theory um, that many other thinkers like John Locke and others um, pick up later on. So in that case, and Aquinas would have – does he see really – do governments have total freedom in kind of how they apply those general principles of natural law? Or are there specific kind of guiding rules for how they would apply those in specific circumstances? Um, do they have – this is an interesting question for Aquinas. Um, and, 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 and as with many of these thinkers, you kind of have to ask not just what does this thinker think but who – after them in their tradition, what do they think? So the sort of key ethical thinker in, in Thomas Aquinas's line today is Alastair McIntyre. Uh, and he probably he has a different take on Aquinas than others. And so you may have to parse out some of this on that level. But in terms of just Aquinas, uh, he would say the principles of natural law are not up to you. You don't decide what they are. They're inside of you already because of God's creation. You have natural uh, desires, natural tendencies, natural goals towards which you go. And like Aristotle, he thinks these natural tendencies that are inside of you are good and they lead to, they are supposed to lead to happiness. Um, And so those, in that sense, you don't have any option about what those general principles are, but none of those general principles, like for example, he thinks, uh, you know, sexual procreation, that would be a that would be a natural inclination in people. And he thinks that is rightly considered and under certain constraints, which he would call, you know, Christian marriage. He would say that's meant to be ha- that's meant to be a part of human happiness and flourishing. He even says things like not wanting to offend your neighbors is a is a natural thing in human behavior. Um, so if you're offensive, you're unnatural. Um, so, um, <laughs> so, you know, there's lots of th- it, what this hinges on really is what you consider the nature of reality to be. I'll go back to our distinction we had in the beginning, the difference between the is and the ought, or the descriptive and the prescriptive. For Aquinas, ethics always starts with the nature of reality. What is our natural capacity? What are human beings tended? What are we designed to be and to do? What makes us happy inherently? And then you move from that to specific conclusions. Now, in human law, he is very flexible. Um, I wouldn't say he's a relativist. He doesn't say that like, any decision is the right decision. He thinks you need to use human reason, practical reason, he would say. Um, and by that, he means there's a lot of contingency. There's a lot of, he says, you can't, ha- he actually does say that human law will be imperfect. Um, whereas natural law, he thinks, should be that's not practical reason as much as it is speculative reason, and that should be accurate for him. He thinks that your rational conclusions 
on natural law, and for that matter, God's God's reason in eternal law. That is that is definitely a, a perfect process if you do it correctly. Um, so he thinks that human decisions in human law uh, are often very murky, and that's why he says you need divine law. You need you need scripture, and you need the Old Testament uh, Ten Commandments. You need Jesus's injunctions to love your neighbor as yourself. You need that to fill in the gaps because there's so much contingency in human affairs. Uh, God's word sort of fills in a lot of those gaps. But yes, he does think reason should guide and there will be a frame of acceptable decisions in practical reasoning and practical decision making guided by natural law and also for him guided by God's proclamations. So it sounds like he would not have any particular objections to the way the Italian government is handling the coronavirus. Then that that's a that's within the bounds of reason. That's that's within the responsibility that's given to the state, and that as long as there is uh, sincerity in the attempt to love neighbor by how uh, that hospital administrators are seeking to love their communities through how they administrate those resources they have. That that's a legitimate ethical option to say, here is going to be our system for how we handle this overload in, ho- in the hospital. Yeah, and he would also say, I think, what you need to do is you need to look at what are those – he would say, do not harm one another is a natural – as a part of natural law. It's an inherent thing, and that's built into our medical code of do not harm. Uh, and so I think he would say what the key thing to do in human law is – not merely to uh, find a decision that's acceptable um, within the frame. You should do that. But he says what you also have to do is you have to uh, weigh and balance certain general principles. So in certain circumstances, he'll say, uh, sometimes uh, the natural law of do not harm uh, is more important than the natural law of uh, not offending your neighbors, for example. Um, so he's, you know, you have to make a decision about what inherent general principles hierarchically apply to that particular circumstance. And yeah, I think he would allow, he would be much more generous, I think, with the decisions being made, uh, than we are. I think, I think he's one of the few people and I respect his ethical system so much because he has such an ability to say, there are a lot of different ways to do ethically valid decisions in this in in any human circumstance and he says the more detailed you get the more contingent and chaotic the ethical process is and i think that's absolutely true no it makes a lot of sense i i read i don't know where i read this years ago but i think it's pretty true pretty sound that um uh dante's divine comedy is essentially aquinas but in poet poetic form and I've, I th- the uh, Divine Comedy ends with those, uh, those great lines, the love that moves the sun and other stars. So I, I've at least kind of, the way I very briefly approached Aquinas's, um, uh, the way I briefly approached Aquinas's ethic was really in terms of kind of like that, I, that key idea of Christian love and how that Christian love motivates actions. Though I, I appreciate how you've kind of, Taken that and put that into a particular framework. That's that's really helpful. I've not I'd not really considered his four uh, framework four pieces of, of laws. Um, okay, well that brings us. We're going to skip a few more centuries here. And next up is uh, Immanuel Kant, 
Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly narrate cons, and then I, I really want you to correct anything you feel free, feel like you want to or add to in cons. Do you mind if we cover Mill first? Because I oh, think cons sure. make more sense. Even though Mill comes after, utilitarian right. um, kind of precedes cons, so I think it might work better. Sure. All right. Uh, do you want to take Mill or do you want me to take Mill? Uh, I don't mind Mill. Yeah, I can take Mill. Yeah, and then you, you take, take Mill. Con. That's fine. Yep, go for it. So uh, John Stuart Mill – uh, is a part of this tradition of utilitarianism, which actually precedes him uh, with a figure called Jeremy Bentham. Um, and so it was around the, – the ideas of Mill and the ideas of utilitarianism were around and popular um, when, when Kant ends up writing. And what, what Mill does is very – I think a lot of people sympathize with Mill, and I think implicitly Americans, whether they've read Mill or not, probably are some branch of utilitarianism. And what utilitarianism says is the ultimate goal – Sounds on the surface very similar to what Aristotle says is the ultimate point of ethics, which is happiness. Uh, or sometimes they'll say pleasure. And particularly what he thinks the goal of ethics needs to be is the maximization of pleasure and the absolute reduction, so far as it's possible, of pain uh, uh, or harm. And so – what he tries to do and what utilitarianism I think is trying to do is it's trying to make ethics scientific. It's, it's coming at a time when science is sort of the God term for people. For that matter, it's the God term for Kant as well. Scientific reason is what people uh, – is what academics want in order to legitimize their projects. And so people like Mill and Bentham want to say – we can literally quantify the amount of pleasure and happiness and or pain and suffering that any given action will provide. And so what you do is you make a decision on ethics or on public policy. These were very politically active people as well and had very radical views for their time. Mill is one of the most radical feminists of his time um, because of some of his utilitarian ideas. He thought – you know, women experience pleasure and pain in the very similar, if not identical ways as men. So why do we give them different uh, political treatments? So uh, he's a fascinating figure. And also, I should say, a part of this tradition of often a part of this tradition of, of, of what I refer to as liberal philosophy, even though he's different from Kant. Um, but he's often used by people in these philosophical camps. But he would tell you that. Basically, when you're faced with the decision about what to do, you should or say in the coronavirus, what what decision will minimize suffering or maximize pleasure? And so for him, it doesn't really have anything to do with uh, some kind of rule. It doesn't have to do with any kind of law. It doesn't even have to do with uh, human nature, particularly or with the nature of reality, I would say. I would say it doesn't have a lot to do with, with the nature of reality as much as the impact of your decision or the, the sensory experience of people's decisions. And he does think of happiness as a long-term thing, but he also thinks of it as kind of a quantity. So he'll say, you know, well, how if you, uh, people rightly ask, you know, well, how do I know that, you know, one pleasure is really the pleasure I should be seeking after or will produce happiness. And he says, if I am asked what I mean by difference of quality and pleasures or what makes one pleasure more valuable than another, if there's a comp competition between desires, essentially, uh, merely as a pleasure, except it's being greater in amount, 
there is but one possible answer. Of two pleasures, if there be one to which all or almost all who have experience of both give a decided preference, mm -hmm. irrespective of any feeling of moral obligation to prefer it, that is the more desirable pleasure. So in a conflict between which uh, desire or pleasure to fulfill, what do most people tend to prefer? That's the measure. Um, so he's a very democratic figure. Pleasure, utilitarianism, what constitutes happiness is decided by a kind of sense of public preference or public fulfillment. And so in that sense, it's very contingent on communities. And, and he would say it's not necessarily contingent on that because he thinks human beings are very similar to one another. Um, but if, if you take that human beings have different ideas of pleasure, I think for, for Mill, you're going to end up having different communities that make different conclusions uh, for, ethical, for ethical ends and ethical pleasures. <coughs> Mill is fascinating on so many levels. Um, as you were talking, I thought of three things I want to just add in here. If I remember correctly, uh, he terms the heart of his version of utilitarianism as the greatest happiness principle. That is the, the greatest happiness for the greatest number at the cost of the least pain and suffering. Uh, and his predecessor, Bentham, was definitely in on the uh, – he, he made this even more mathematic or as mathematic as it was scientific. Uh, my favorite part about teaching Bentham is focusing on his uh, – what he called the philosophic calculus where he, he never quite finished it. But he was working on trying to develop a mathematical system where you could literally assign a positive value to every kind of pleasure that results from an action and then you sum those numbers – and you add a negative value to every kind of pain that's produced by an action, and then you compare your two values. And whichever is the greater value, that, that tells you what, whether that action is good or bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, that mathematical rigor provides a sense of scientific certainty yeah. to your system. I think that's why utilitarianism is compelling, because it, it tells you, yes, you can know for sure – what produces happiness and what produces pain. Oh, and that, that surety is the place where I think if there's an Achilles heel to the utilitarianism system, it's in that surety. And it's in that, it's in that, that sense. And I would argue, I think it's a, it's a facade of surety because you cannot actually know what will produce long-term happiness because, and part of that is because Aristotle makes a very careful distinction between pleasure and happiness very early on in the ethics. Mill, in the, uh, the, his essay on utilitarianism, he equates the two. I was actually quoting from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Uh, but he equates those two. And so for Mill, happiness is just uh, – and a very uh, – and he is careful. He does mean base sensual pleasure, but he also means long-term pleasure because he's got an example in there about why is it wrong. He still believes it's wrong to lie. But the reason it's wrong is because you ultimately will corrode people's trust in the trustworthiness of mankind. It will – you individually should tell the truth so that the consequences of your telling the truth contribute to a global honesty, which is ultimately beneficial, as opposed to a lower level of honesty. Now, if you cannot correctly predict what will come of your actions, utilitarianism falls apart. Mill believes you can predict that. And I think this is another one of the ways where um, I think certainly at least we're recording this on March 20th. Um, I saw one essay today that was arguing that um, the current coronavirus response is done off of a study that was modeled out of uh, 
I think it was Imperial College in London. There's a group of scientists who predicted this. Well, they are <coughs> assuming there's a lot of assumptions that go into any kind of scientific modeling. You make you assume that a virus will behave a certain way, that it will mutate at a certain rate or not mutate at a certain rate, and that people's behaviors will have certain effects. All of those are assumptions that may or may not be correct, and they call into question the validity of that kind of future casting. I'm sure we both had experiences where we assumed the weather would cooperate with us and we're wrong. I Indeed. mean, I, and that's the predictive value of science is uh, absolutely critical to mm-hmm. this ethical theory because if you can, uh, you know, I have no problem with using predictive measures um, in mathematical formulas. I don't have any problem with predictive measures of calculus that tell us what's going to happen if you make a bridge in a certain way. Um, I don't have any problem with predictive measures for physical matter. Um, But it turns out that living beings uh, and organisms and humans are much more difficult to predict. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I often think that this certainty that scientific utilitarians try to apply to human behavior is often a category mistake. But that's me speaking from a humanities point of view. (laughs) uh, And I think uh, the theory of Aquinas allows for this. It allows for much more contingency in human affairs, even as he also allows for certainty on the level of certain forms of reason and principles. Now, it is um, worth noting, since we're, we are following a sort of history of philosophy approach, that uh, Mill in our list of five is a – he's a breakpoint uh, in at least these two senses. Um, his philosophy is entirely um, eminent rather than transcendent-based, meaning by that that his philosophy is not appealing to some sort of metaphysical reality. He believe, His philosophy is entirely based on the actual events of this world that we can see. And as such, uh, part of the reason he goes that route is because very early on, Mill develops a pretty intense skepticism about the existence of God. And that, that forms part of the radical nature of his philosophy and his political views in 19th century England. Uh, that was not a common view in 19th century England among intellectuals. That's, he's part of that shift. Now, he's not, yeah. as far as I know, he's not like full-blown militant atheist like Nietzsche is, but his philosophy is thoroughly shaped by the fact that he he doesn't have much hope for providence or miracles or anything. He's he's looking instead at just the mundane things that are scientifically measurable, <laughs> and that's what we look to for ultimate truth. He, Mill is definitely a child of the Enlightenment, a product of the Enlightenment, and so in that sense, he is championing human reason and human cap- capacity to change the world and understand it. Um, and so, yes, he doesn't want to rely on. To him, that would be opposed to relying on. Uh, what 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 Aquinas would call divine law, or allowing these crutches of morality to decide things for us. Although it should be said that him being a creature of the 19th century, uh, in on utilitarianism, he 19th century British society specifically, uh, Mill definitely does set. He explicitly says in that text that he thinks his philosophy is the most natural extension <laughs> of Jesus' statement to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, so I don't know how genuine that is, um, but I, I share your skepticism of his uh, religiosity for certain. Yeah, uh, but he really thinks that his he, ethics is consistent with Christian ethics. 
Well, and yeah, and he the other because he does say that you're right about that. He does. I remember we focused on that in class because that's something that struck out struck people's rather odd. Uh, but at the point where he tries to make Jesus into utilitarian, I'm pretty sure that that is a uh, not very subtle attempt to cloak his his philosophy in something that will be more palatable to most people of his day. Indeed, um, and he probably accused of being various forms of a pagan or something at that time. Yeah. I have no doubt. He doesn't. His philosophy does not lend itself to some kind of individual sacrifice for others, uh, and and. Certainly the, the logic of Christian salvation, it really kind of becomes horrific if it's like, well, God the Son thought, you know what, if I, kill, if I let myself die, if I suicide on a cross, then that's going to result in 10 billion souls saved, and I will do that. And it, it changes salvation from an act of divine mercy and love to one of um, economic calculation, <laughs> Which yeah. is kind of terrifying. I mean, that just is awful if that's the case. He anticipates being accused of a merely quantifiable, uh, merely a thinker of quantity in terms of ethics. But I think that is often what he falls into, that he, yeah. he is thinking of the greatest good for the greatest number. And uh, so, so the coronavirus article that you link immediately refers to what's called a trolley problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, trolley problems are only compelling to utilitarians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trolley problems are there's a train coming. It's going to run over 100 people. If I pull the lever, the train will run over one person. I should pull the lever because one person dying is less bad than 100 people dying. That's a utilitarian calculus. It's, it, it expressly relies on mere quantity of pleasure and suffering to make the decision. Yeah. So, <clears throat> But it is also a very clear-cut way to quickly decide something. I mean it doesn't take long to make a utilitarian calculus. And it is exactly what this uh, Atlantic article cites as kind of the way these doctors are, are reasoning. They are following a utilitarian framework. So it's a very, very common approach today. <laughs> well. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's shift gears then over to Immanuel Kant. Um, <clears throat> I was pulling this up a minute ago. I want to make sure I got the title right. Um, what I've read from Kant, and I, I assume, Blake, you're probably better read in Kant than I am, but I'm pulling all of this from his Groundwork for Metaphysics uh, in Morals, and yep. uh, that that's the key text that I'm most familiar with from Kant. Kant it's also known, it has another title because it's translated, The Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics of Morals. Oh, I didn't realize it was the same text. Okay, cool. <laughs> I think it's the same text, yeah. Wow. It's just a different German, it's a, a translation from the German. No. Uh, Kant was a prolific, prolific philosopher. He's from uh, uh, Konigsberg in Prussia. He's an 18th century philosopher, and if uh, uh, Blake called Mill a child of the Enlightenment, Kant was living smack dab during the middle of the Enlightenment. He is a uh, high Enlightenment philosopher, and he does a lot of things. He's famous for uh, inventing uh, the critique uh, he, he writes the uh, Critique of Pure Reason, a critique of uh, – he has three different books that all involve a critique. Uh, but he – in terms of uh, ethics, uh, his groundwork is a relatively short essay. Uh, it's about – the edition that I, I have is about 40 pages long. So uh, if you are listening and want to stop and read it, um, maybe brew yourself a pot of coffee before you start trying to read it because it is a dense 40 pages he does a lot in there. So I'm going to briefly kind of sketch out his system, uh, and then we'll see what, what Blake wants to add here. Um, 
Kant is picking up on a lot of things, but in his particular moment in philosophical history, he's responding primarily to a guy named David Hume, I think, who has just, who has attempted previously to debunk the existence of an ought. Uh, Hume famously phrased the is-ought problem uh, in claiming that there is no such thing as an ought and all we're left with is what is. Immanuel Kant wants to respond to that, but he cannot really do it effectively because Hume's logic is, it's, it's, it's bad, it's wrong, I would argue, but it's airtight. Uh, and <clears throat> so Kant wants to get behind uh, the world in a way. He wants to argue that there is something a priori, or uh, from before, something that pre-exists all reality, and if he can get at that, even if Hume is right about there not being an ought in this world that we can see, there's one outside the world and that we can see, uh, which is going to put Kant in the same tradition as Aquinas, Aquinas and Plato in the sense of he's going to hang his ethics directly on a metaphysical claim. So that's a long-winded way of, of trying to say that uh, what Kant is trying to do in his book is explain how do we make ethical situation or how do we make ethical decisions? We have to do it by figuring out what is the eternal law or the pre-existing law from before the foundations of the world. Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, "Huh, God?" You're probably thinking correctly, but Kant is very careful. He does not talk about God, but it seems to me that Kant is a he is He's being that natural law thinker who has got God in the background of almost every page, but he's very careful to not hinge any of his philosophy on the existence of God, because he wants this to be as universally accessible as possible. So here's how this goes. Uh, there is, he asserts that there is an a priori moral law that we in the world can figure out. <coughs> the way we figure out what this a priori moral law is, is through a thought experiment he calls the categorical imperative where when we are faced with an ethical dilemma and a particular ethical situation, we have to get out of ourselves, imagine for a moment what would happen if everyone was faced with this dilemma, and if everyone made choice A, would that be beneficial? Or if, if it would be beneficial, then we know the, act, the particular expression of that action is a good thing. Now, if we know that everyone doing this would be harmful, then we know the particular action is also harmful. Kant is very logical. He's working uh, on the square of opposition with the relationships of universality and particulars. Now, it's important to note that the categorical imperative does not make something good or bad. What it does is it illuminates the inherent nature of the action. And that what that does is that you use the categorical imperative to derive the existence of this moral law's application in a particular scenario. So... Uh, when I'm faced with a uh, situation where, let's say, I have backed over my neighbor's mailbox and uh, the neighbors are on vacation, they don't have a camera videoing me, they, <coughs> they might never know. But when I'm thinking about should I tell my neighbors that I backed over their mailbox or not, if I'm going to follow this method, I then imagine what if everyone destroyed property and then lied about it? Well... If everyone did that, it would quickly lead to the decay of trust in neighbors, and it would also lead to an awful lot of destroyed property, and it would harm the economic stability of everyone who has property. Those are all objectively obvious bad things. 
And so then when I go back down to my level and think, aha, when I'm faced with this situation, I too should not do that. In fact, I'll go fess up to my neighbor and say, hey, I ran over your mailbox. Here's 200 bucks. Get a new mailbox and go on from there. Now, what that's doing, Kant argues, is that is me realizing through kind of this thought experiment that the moral law applies. Because I am a rational being who can think and perceive the existence of this moral law through the categorical imperative, I am then obligated to act in a specific way. (laughs) Once I perceive the moral obligation, I have to then act in such a way that I am following the moral law. That's Immanuel Kant's kind of ethical system writ large. Blake, corrections, additions, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's uh, often helped. This is why I wanted to do Mill first and then Kant, because it's very, I think it's easy to understand. It's easier to get at what Kant is doing by contrasting him with what utilitarians are doing. Imagine someone reading utilitarianism and then being utterly unsatisfied with it and deciding no. I'm going to create a pure system of ethics based on principle rather than based on prediction of consequences. That's what Kant is doing. Kant is trying to create the anti-utilitarian frame of ethics um, because utilitarianism is so popular during his day and he finds it unsatisfying. The reason he finds it unsatisfying is because he thinks it's subjective. Um, He is a rationalist. Through and through, if Kant is anything, he is some form of rational idealist trying to reconcile his idealism with empiricism, um, with David Hume, as you said. And uh, I think his categorical imperative is a response to what he calls a hypothetical imperative. And he would basically say that every single utilitarian claim is a hypothetical imperative. What they're saying is, I can hypothetically imagine and predict what the consequences of my actions are going to be and what the impacts are going to be. Imagine every debate round that has an impact section. They are presuming that they can predict some level of of consequences of your actions. Kant says that is impossible. You cannot do that. You do not know what the impacts of your actions will be. You cannot quantify the amount of suffering or pain or pleasure that will happen as a result. That's all hypothetical. It's very subjective and therefore not objective and not scientific. Kant and Mill both want scientific certainty. It's just that Kant thinks you can't have scientific certainty by quantifying suffering and trying to predict outcomes. Rather, Kant says what you can have certainty about is categorical, rational precepts. And that's what the categorical imperatives provide, he thinks. Uh, it's, a, of course, a huge debate about whether he actually achieves this or not. But that's essentially what he's trying to do. And I think uh, I the only correction I might make is actually in the circumstance where you run over your neighbor's mailbox and you go through the uh, categorical imperative, when you say, ah, but if everybody did this, it would create bad results, right? That it would, if everybody ran over mailboxes, then we would destroy property and that would be really terrible because it would harm lots of people. I actually don't think that's what Kant is thinking. I don't think Kant is worried about the consequences. That's kind of a utilitarian thing to do is to postulate, well, if everybody did this bad thing, it would result in bad consequences. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what he's worried about. What he's worried about is if you run over mailboxes and you think that's okay, and every, then it's okay for everybody else, you have undermined the nature of property. 
Um, so it is you, it is exclusively the principal level that Cod is this is we, we went back and forth on this in my class. I don't know how many times. I was trying to maintain that that's what he's doing. But the examples he gives in the groundwork, uh, he does have this very thin veneer of consequences that he brings up. And I couldn't decide if that's because he just can't do illustrations without consequences or what. Because he has these four examples in the groundwork that he keeps going back over. And all of them have some level of consequence that's involved. The consequence, I think, for him is you're compromising there is a consequence, but it's not pain or pleasure. Uh, this is why Nietzsche describes Kant's ethics, categorical imperative, as immensely cruel. Um, because Kant doesn't care about pleasure or pain. Kant cares about the integrity of your rational decisions. Um, Kant cares about the nature of the premises of your rational decisions, of your categories that you've adopted. And if you compromise those rational categories, then you are acting improperly because he says the only pure thing is a good will. In other words, your intentions, your good, uh, rationally guided willpower, that's what determines whether your action is good, not whether it impacts your body or, or creates suffering. Um, so he's, he's very worried about lying, for example, um, because... Uh, if if you allow, it's not because lying will make people unhappy. Uh, it's because if you allow, in fact, stopping yourself from lying might make you unhappy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in many cases, going to your neighbor and telling them that you ran over their mailbox is going to make you unhappy. At the very um, least, I'm out two hundred bucks, and uh, depending on the neighbor, my neighbor may not be okay with this. I mean, no, they sue you, and you'll have a you know a misdemeanor or something on your record. You know, who knows? There's lots of bad yeah. things that are going to happen. Uh, that's not the issue. Kant says it, your happiness is not what should be deciding your ethical framework. What should be deciding your ethical framework is. Uh, is this a rationally guided decision that's consistent with the principles that all humans accept? He doesn't say just your personal principles. He's like all human beings have the same – if you're a real rational being, you have the same categories. So he's a universalist and he thinks that we'll all arrive at the same conclusions because we all have the same reason. Um, so yeah, I think when he's worried about theft, when he's worried about lying, he's worried about the fabric of society falling apart. Not just falling apart in terms of actions, but like the very rational uh, concept of law falls apart if you don't have some basic form of, of, say, perjury. Or the very basic sense of human interaction and trust that we all depend upon. Uh, in this sense, he kind of does have a natural idea of human capacity, of reason. He thinks that if you threaten reason with your ethical decisions, that's immoral. That's the real moral offense. And he even goes beyond uh, – he goes beyond humans too. And one, this is one of my favorite little side notes for Kant because he has – I think it's a section one or two of the groundwork. He has this little paragraph. He's like, you know, we humans are the only rational animals we know of so far. But there might be others out there. <laughs> and Indeed. if so, he believes they too are governed by these same rational categorical precepts that we can derive using the categorical imperative. Indeed. And he also, you should recognize, this is a problem with all enlightenment texts, but uh, they also consider people we would consider human beings. There are other texts where Kant looks at certain, you know, 
tribes in other countries that don't seem to really be guided by reason. And Kant's quite comfortable with saying they're not human. He, uh, I, I remember when I last studied Kant in, uh, with uh, Dr. Mark Linville in, uh, the, in Faulkner's program, uh, he did point us to a few other texts that were not – they're not in the groundwork, but um, Kant has a justifiable reputation for being quite racist and – which he's not, he's not unique in that. I mean, it's like every European in the 18th and 19th century was racist, it seems like. Right. Um, I mean, it's pretty banal to point out that uh, someone during his time is racist and sexist. It's pretty obvious and inevitable. But nonetheless, you should hear – when you hear him describe the human, he's not nearly as generous about who gets to be human and rational as we are. Oh, that's you know, I, that's interesting. I hadn't quite thought about that because he does have and that that. Oh, that's interesting. That reframes his categorical imperative in a way because the, um, and who gets to be because mem- by section three when he's dealing with the uh, the the kingdom of ends versus the kingdom of means and who are the legislators in the kingdom of ends. If it's only people who are as rational as he is, uh, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to be a pretty – that's a pretty aristocratic group of legislators. That's not this right. broad say, thing. Yeah, the, the important thing I think is not to say let's follow Kant to the letter as much as this is a tradition that started by Kant in many respects. And it's it's more important I think to recognize the principles and the ideas that get carried through by other people who are much more generous about humanity and rationality, uh, like John Rawls, for example. There are a more and John Locke, for that matter. There are other Kantians uh, who who very much uh, up are, are, are don't fall prey to some of the things that Kant falls prey to. Sure. Well, now I, I'm thinking about this. I don't know that Kant is terribly helpful for. Uh, issues of a hospital dealing with an overabundance of people needing treatment. Because I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how the. I, I think his universal, his his he's not his theory is not very adaptable to changing circumstances. I don't think. What do you think? Would was this is this? Would you use this to method to kind of make a decision about whether we turn someone away or or get them bed space or set them up in a hallway or something? I think he might say that um, – I think he would have a very sort of intellectual academic way of getting out of this problem. So I don't think he wants to say that we never have to make hypothetical imperatives or that we never should make them. Uh, I, think he, I think he allows for the possibility that, yes, you have to make decisions all the time that are based upon hypothetical circumstances that you can't predict. He would just say – you can't say that that's a moral decision. Which I think is fair. I mean, it may be the case that there are times when we have to make a decision and we simply have to recognize I'm making this decision regardless of the moral cost of the decision. It is the decision that must be made today. And I'll whatever results come from that, we will deal with tomorrow. But yeah. I can see that. that. That if you're making a decision based upon consequential hypotheticals, you you are probably doing something you have to do, but you are not doing something that you can be sure is right. Oh, I think that's a helpful way to frame this. You can only be sure that something is right if you are being rational and pure in your will to do the rational thing. Which gets us into a whole different theolo- – one of the things I always struggle with and that is theologically, is it possible to have a good will? 
But that's a whole I'm, other conversation for a whole other podcast. Oh, yeah. Huff would say yes, but he would probably say most people don't. Okay. Let's uh, let, let's stick with a German theme. Totally and true. most people are utilitarians, and I think it's true. They they have many more factors they're worrying about rather than just whether they're doing the right thing. Sure. Well, let's get back to Nietzsche then. That's where we started all of this. Um, uh, Blake, uh, run us through kind of Nietzsche's ethics and what is he saying about ethics? How is it different from these other four guys we've been talking about? And, and where do you see Nietzsche applying today? Yeah, so I, I really don't think that Nietzsche provides an ethic uh, because I think he wants to say that ethics and morality – he's a critic of ethics and morality and he thinks it is a uh, – what's often called an epiphenomenal uh, thing. He thinks that morality is a perspective imposed – all morality, any of these people we've talked about, all morality is a, is a perspective, a frame that you impose on – on reality, it is not at all an indication of things that are real. Um, and so for him, you know, Aristotle, he even says at one point that Aristotle cannot abide the idea that we could have desires without some ultimate end, because that would mean that we're just infinitely desiring things that are empty and vain. Nietzsche says, yeah, you are desiring things that are infinitely empty and vain. <laughs> That's what he's willing, he's willing to go there. And this is sort of the courageous aspect of Nietzsche's text is that he thinks that a lot of ethicists aren't willing to face difficult truths. And so they create these systems of ethics in order to account for their suffering and to create comfort in certainty. Um, that issue of certainty in utilitarianism, the issue of certainty in Kant, he thinks those are measures – for people that ultimately they serve to comfort people in times of uncertainty, which we are certainly in the midst of with the coronavirus. Um, so I can sort of go through what I think he centrally criticizes, which he's thinker, if you want. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that would be great. So with Aristotle, I think he would just deny that if this is how I always think of ethics and how I like what Nietzsche does in his critique is he goes back to the very first presupposition of any of these thinkers, and he questions those first presuppositions, those things that we can't actually prove or that are very difficult to prove. And that every ethicist has. I mean, everybody has some basic assumptions that they make. Every philosophical system begins assuming something. And I would say every human being begins by assuming something. You, you can't question everything all the time. Uh, you've got to take certain things for granted or on authority or on past experience just to be sane and to function. Um, so I don't at all want to criticize people for doing that, but Nietzsche says because we do that, we often uh, we often assume things that are not as obvious as we like to think they are. Um, so with Aristotle, he wants to say, you should definitely entertain the idea that our desires are pretty vain and that we infinitely desire things that are pretty empty. And he calls those things aesthetic ideals. He would say things like equality, things like diversity, things like justice. Those are all fictions that we imagine because we want them, but that does not mean they're actual things. Um, and so a lot of the virtues that Aristotle would espouse, I think Nietzsche probably would say – I mean he doesn't say this to Aristotle directly. He's probably more sympathetic to Aristotle than any of the thinkers we look at here um, because I don't think Aristotle actually sets up a – 
prescriptive system like a lot of people do. So he doesn't come under Nietzsche's fire. But I think that's what he would do. He would he would question this idea that there is an ultimate end of happiness and whether that isn't really just wish fulfillment rather than a real binding part of human nature. Um, Aquinas, Aquinas is very uh, – asserts rationality as the key thing that guides every part of law. Eternal law is God's reason. Natural law is human reason participating in divine reason. Uh, human law is our marshalling of practical reason. Um, I think Nietzsche questions whether we can act purely in a rational way. Um, and if, if indeed there is no pure distinction, like for, for Aquinas, there's a big distinction between the ration, the, the reason of human beings, your, your rationality and the will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Nietzsche denies that distinction. Uh, Nietzsche denies that there is ever a, <coughs> that your rational capacity can act without the will. Um, there's some debate about whether Aquinas thinks that, but Aquinas certainly thinks that reason is the dominant thing that should be guiding your ethics. And Nietzsche wants to say, really, desire is wrapped up in your ethical decisions uh, a lot of the time, that what you're doing is not merely uh, intellectual calculus. And so he would, he, I think he would question Aquinas on those grounds. That, And Aquinas actually is the most honest about this. He says, I have accepted indemonstrable principles to begin my inquiry and to begin mm-hmm. my arguments. Like Aquinas just accepts that, that there are indemonstrable principles that I have to accept in order to get anywhere. Like the not principle of non-contradiction, for example. Right. You know, Nietzsche says, well, that the principle of non-contradiction isn't demonstrable. So why do you believe it? Um, you know, Nietzsche sort of goes there. Sorry. Did you want to say something? Well, I'm saying like Nietzsche is also not bothered by contradicting himself in various places. I mean, he's, he's not, he he doesn't have a he doesn't have a problem doing that. I mean, and part of that he he's not nearly. Part of that just maybe his like lack of he's not systematic at all. Uh, right. And so things that he wrote in one point, he's clearly kind of like just he's thinking about something completely different and a different point. And those two things just don't. If you line them up, they simply obviously don't agree with each other. Uh, well, I think there's it's more than just him being contrarian because he certainly does that. He does I think he definitely does want to bother people that want him to be systematic. Um that's part of Nietzsche. Is he wants to be a a radical different stylist and not just a radical different thinker. But I also think he thinks human beings think in terms of contradictions. I think he thinks we guide our actions all the time by paradoxical things by contradictory ideas and and more and more psychology can verify this and so can a lot of uh thinkers in the Freudian line and thinkers in Lacan and and people who are interested by people who are influenced by Nietzsche later on right I've done a pretty good job of demonstrating that you and I believe very contradictory things uh and act in contradictory ways so I think he thinks you have to account for that when you're accounting for human behavior Interesting. Uh, so, uh, well, that, yeah. So that's kind of how he would put a plank in Aquinas, uh, among other things. He he has well, other critiques. Of I, I would assume that as much as in part of what we read in genealogy of morals, uh, Nietzsche speaks specifically to Jewish law and to Jesus as being kind of the primary mechanisms for the slave morality affecting the slave revolt and the sphere of morals through the transvaluation of values and such. So I assume in as much as Aquinas kind of carries 
Christianity into his philosophy, Nietzsche is also going to indict him on that that level as well. Nietzsche has a problem, especially in the genealogy, you will get the impression that Nietzsche hates Christianity. And that's probably true. He does hate Christianity in many respects, especially institutionalized Christianity. Interestingly enough, in other texts, he has admiration for Jesus. Um, and so how do you square that? I would say he does have problems with Aquinas. And what he criticizes Aquinas specifically for, he has this long Latin footnote, as though you know Latin. Um, he just sort of assumes you know Latin. Uh, so the, the text usually has to translate it for you. But he quotes Aquinas, and then he also quotes Tertullian on the same subject, uh, a, a Christian mm-hmm. um, thinker of antiquity. And he quotes them both on – Aquinas does apparently say this in a part of his Summa – that the saints will look down on those in hell and enjoy their suffering. <laughs> uh, and he that, and he says – that is slave morality. Uh, I know you have previous episodes that have talked about Nietzsche's idea of yeah. slave morality. But it's basically it's this imaginary revenge that we get obsessed with and that controls most of our actions. Um, and he thinks that Christianity often has, especially in people like Aquinas and Tertullian, and he would say people like even like Pascal um, or, or, or many others, they have this imaginary revenge that they fantasize about because like Jews uh, – Christians have a sort of uh, they they use they use suffering to legitimize their decisions, um, and so they say, "I am most worthy of power, or I'm most worthy of doing things, or my ethical decisions are warranted because I have suffered more than the oppressor, and the oppressor should be over." He thinks that there's sort of this oppressor and oppressive attitude inherent in Christian ethics and Christian morality. And so that's kind of the big thing that he attacks okay. in, in Aquinas. Now what does he uh, any any thoughts on Nietzsche against Kant or Mill? Does he interact with their thinking at all? He directly mentions Kant in the genealogy and he mentions utility or utilitarianism uh, in the genealogy as well. He doesn't drop Mill's name, but he clearly addresses their philosophy. Um, he would say uh, with with uh, Kant <laughs> He would have a similar critique of rationality that he had with Aquinas. Um, he, he, lo- he levies that critique explicitly. Um, but he also thinks that this is an example of sort of self-loathing and self-hatred on Kant's part. Uh, I mean, if you could think about it, what Kant is doing is he's saying no to everything that cries out in human nature and human compassion. Um if you think about it, for example, the classic example of, you know, like a Nazi knocks at your door and you have you're hiding a, a Jewish family in your basement and the Nazi asks you, do you have Jews in this home? And everybody in our culture would say would say well, you are obliged to say you're you're obliged to lie. Basically, that's how most of us would say we would all say you need to lie to that Nazi. You with me? Yeah. Yeah. Right. We would all say that's wrong. They're going to hurt them. They're going to execute them. Likely, they're going to put them in concentration camps. We know that. We can predict that. So lie, and that will create more happiness, and we will be better off having done that. That seems like a very normal thing, even if you're not a utilitarian in explicitly. That seems like a very reasonable response to most people. Kant says, "No, tell them the truth." And uh, if you want to be a moral person, 
if you want to act in a moral way, that's what you have to do. And to, to, to Nietzsche, this is, this is the most egregious example you could possibly think of, that it just erases everything in the human being except for rationality. He thinks this is what enlightenment reason ultimately does to human beings, is it, it ex, it, it's excruciating, and he calls it cruel, because it, it erases everything about us that is not intellectual or rational. Um, That's fascinating. I, I I I can resonate with that that much of Nietzsche. I mean that that uh, Kant has he he seems to not have that lack of flexibility is is troubling. Um, I, when I was teaching Kant, I usually found myself uh, my my students are much more relativistic, so I found myself really defending Kant almost completely. Because they, it, it took about six weeks before I could get students to actually think deontologically. And even then, they were doing it so that they could pass my quiz, so it was rather consequentially motivated. But still, they had to demonstrate that they could think, this is the principle, here is how this person should act according to the principle, regardless of action. And so, but I, in, in reality, I, mean, like, I, I can feel the tension there that Nietzsche is homing in on. Right, yeah, and the the key problem with Kant for me is that it is not a positive ethic. It's not a substantial ethic. I think what really Kant is doing, he's very helpful for telling you what not to do if you mm. want to be moral, and he's very helpful for telling you what is purely good and moral. But he's not very good for setting up, say, if you ask the question, what's the best way of having a good society, or what's the best way of running a family, or what's the best way of organizing an institution? Kant doesn't really – his ethics don't answer those questions. Um, it's a very individualized what I should or shouldn't do. And mainly it tells you, no, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Uh, uh, it, it has a lot of do nots. And so for him, it makes sense that this is I, – I, I sympathize with Nietzsche saying this is a man who has is, who is predicated his philosophy on human self loathing like that's basically what Nietzsche thinks he thinks that the slave morality ultimately rests on self-hatred whereas the the noble morality ultimately rests and begins with self-affirmation with, mm -hmm. with affirming what I am and who I am and what I'm capable of doing and not having shame and guilt about what I'm good at and what I am capable of oh Blake that's that's probably a helpful spot to transition to a couple of closing questions I'm keeping an eye on our time we've uh this is we're we're, we're about to hit an hour and a half so good stuff Gosh, yeah. yeah that's kind of amazing we've done a lot of thinkers so oh, I, get it. I know it's this is great um i'm we're currently uh well if 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 like other schools in North Carolina, I have to figure out how to do uh, online learning next track I'm probably going to assign this episode as a at least uh two maybe three days worth of stuff for uh, my philosophy students. It's also a great summary of kind of everything we've done this year in ethics. So, um, Blake, with all of that as kind of our background, uh, how would you describe the relationship between ethics and metaphysics? Uh, are they necessarily connected? Does one drive the other? And what order would you put them in if one does, in fact, drive the other? What, what pushes the other? Yeah, and I think this ethics and metaphysics is sort of uh, – they're the more advanced terms for, I think, the basic distinction we began with, which is is versus ought. Um, metaphysics is about the nature of reality. Ought is about uh, the, the nature of ethics or what we should do, even though it may not actually be reality itself. So if you accept that distinction, which of course 
I've shown you people that Nietzsche doesn't accept that distinction. He doesn't believe that he does not believe that uh, ethics is a proper category opposable to to metaphysics. But also, uh, met is the nature of reality essential as a starting point for determining what you should do in your daily life? I think yes. Uh, I think that that actually has to be the first place you start with ethics. I think if you begin with ethics without starting with metaphysics or what is real, what you consider to be true from the beginning, your fundamental starting points, if you do that, then it's not because you don't have a metaphysic. It's because you're you're ignoring the metaphysic you already have. Um, so I don't think ethics are possible. It's not possible to make a decision about the coronavirus or about anything, about lying, about running over your neighbor's mailbox. It's not possible to do that without taking certain things for granted as true. You have to take certain things for granted. And we must ask, what are those things you're taking for granted and should you take them for granted or are they justified? I think those are those are great thoughts. Um, I would look at this question in terms of where – Ethics is uh, – I'd probably frame it a little bit differently where metaphysics and kind of the uh, the Aristotelian sense is going beyond the physical. <laughs> I mean you've got the physics that's dealing with the principles of motion, but then you've got metaphysics as we can't see any of these things, but we infer that they are there based on what we do see. And it, yeah. it our, our list of five thinkers today seems to fall into two big categories where we've got Aristotle, Aquinas, and Kant – all affirm some version of a metaphysical reality. In theological terms, that's the spiritual realm. Uh, but you've got uh, all of these guys assume that there is, in fact, something more than what we can perceive with the senses. But then you've got Mill and you've got Nietzsche. Mill just simply doesn't really deal with a metaphysic. Nietzsche actively denies a metaphysic. And they both develop, and then all of these guys seem to develop very different ethical views based on that. Your Aristotle, Aquinas, and Kant are all generally aligned in terms of how they think people ought to live, because that ought is not based on this world. That ought is based on something beyond this world. Mill and Nietzsche have different views, but they're unified in the fact that ultimately you, there is no ought that you have you should aspire to. You simply, in a in a utilitarian framework do what makes the most sense in that moment that you think, based on your limited knowledge, will produce the best consequences. And for Nietzsche, uh, I, I still think there does seem to be, I'm not sure I'm with you on him not having an ethic, but again, I'll defer to your wider reading. But it seems to me that he does, <coughs> there seems to be some kind of implied ethic of don't be oppressed or fooled. <laughs> so if you can get out of being oppressed that's a better state of being than, than being oppressed or being tricked or, or believing a lie. Uh, I've, I've heard him called the uh, philosopher of the hammer because he wants to go around and destroy all these illusion, illusory idols that we worship. And he seems to be affirming that that's the best kind of life because there is nothing more. So in this life under the sun, live truthfully and as much as your perspective is true, don't submit to that but because he denies the existence of anything else. So this point in our philosophical year always kind of puts me at kind of hoping my students see the connection between these two and that, that really what you believe about things beyond the world of the senses has everything to do with how you actually live as a person of senses and as in your embodied choices. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'll touch on Mill and Nietzsche here because I think they they deserve some attention. 
Mill is probably the key example of what I'm talking about of someone who doesn't really address the nature of reality and just goes straight to ethics. Um, at least in his treatment of ethics, he doesn't really go back. So what's his first presupposition? His first presupposition is that pleasure and happiness are a good thing and suffering and pain are bad. Um, why does he believe that? Why does he take that for granted? Um, Nietzsche would say, and I think he's right, that actually it's more complicated than that. That actually many of the things that bring about the most happiness, in fact, come through suffering. That there is no that, that actually pain and suffering are an intimate part of what makes us good and excellent and life thriving for Nietzsche. Uh, and so I think it, for for Mill, he's he is belying a metaphysic which assumes that. Everything will be better if we get rid of pain. And I think this idea that you getting rid of pain will make or pain and suffering going away would actually make us better off, I think is somewhat foolhardy. Uh, that in fact, we, in some complicated way, we need suffering and pain in order to be happy. Um, and that's a much more difficult, that compromises the utilitarian calculus from the beginning, uh, basic presupposition of its ethics. Nietzsche, if I were to get again, he doesn't accept the is ought distinction. I don't think so. It it doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in in an ethic as much as he doesn't think it's a category. So you're right to see that he has kind of an ethical impulse mm -hmm. in his because he's kind of doing both at the same time. Um, what he wants to do is, if you were to in the greater literature of Nietzsche, which I don't expect other people to have have read because it's difficult to read even one thing by Nietzsche, let alone two or three or five. Um, but he does advance a project where he wants us to be life affirming rather than life denying. And I think if you were to pinpoint something that Nietzsche thinks we are going towards, he doesn't think he, he thinks if you're going to be life affirming, you'll be life affirming. If you're going to be life denying, you're going to be life denying. He's kind of a determinist. Um, so, can you have an ethics if you're a determinist? Not really. Uh, you know, if you believe that people are the way they are and there's not a lot of uh, choice, he doesn't believe in free will, you know, ethics doesn't make sense to a thinker like that. Um, so I think Nietzsche believes we are moving in a direction where right now the life deniers, the Kant's and he thinks the mills too, the life deniers, and he thinks he thinks Christianity has done this too, people who want to wallow in guilt and self-pity and self-loathing, they are the winners of history so far. And Nietzsche thinks eventually people who affirm life are going are gonna to start surfacing in small numbers, in small groups. And he calls those people the Ubermensch. That is, uh, well, we, we could go on there for, for an awfully long time, but I'm going to resist the temptation to d dive into the Ubermensch. He's a, that's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Yeah, and he, that's why he lists people like Jesus and Napoleon and right. Achilles. Those are the kinds of people he thinks sort of foreshadow these people that actually affirm life. No. Uh, even though Those, then that, that life is that they affirm is not anything that we currently are participating in. If I understand this correctly, it's like he, a, he thinks there are life affirmers now. He just thinks they're not in control. They're not dominant. Okay. They're not, he thinks that the slave morality dominates and you and I, you know, I could illustrate this briefly if you want, but I don't know if we have time. Sure. Uh, Go but for yeah, it. Briefly, I would just say, you know, when you receive a compliment, what's your first instinct? 
usually to try and deflect the compliment or to exactly. just say thank you and move on and not dwell on it. Not be like, yes, bring on the praise. I am that awesome person. Yeah, I'm the same way. I sometimes look downwards and say, oh, that, you know, I, I only that I have my parents to thank for that or my elders to thank for that or my teachers to thank for that or without all of you, I wouldn't be, you know, we are trained to be ashamed for doing something well. And that basic, that basic response to him, to him, he says, that's a sign of weakness. And he says, there's no reason you should be ashamed of doing something well. That's life denying, actually, for you to be, feel guilt about being good at something. Or even to say that you're good at, we can't even say that we're good at something in front of other people. Because if we do that, we're immediately called arrogant and bragging. Which, and this is where I find Nietzsche so interesting and yet at the same exact moment so dangerous to read, Um, especially at particular points in life. I mean, I I put Ayn Rand in the same category of interesting yet dangerous to read at certain moments because – He wants to be dangerous. Well, I know. but I'm I'm thinking particularly of that that idea of the compliment and the – now, I remember specific – I did a pastoral internship years ago where we talked about this, about like – Especially when, like, when you're done preaching a sermon, um, people always want to say nice things to you. And it's like uh, it can become immensely dangerous because at the very moment when you think, oh, yeah, I did preach a great sermon. In the at least the way that our pastor taught us to think about sermon, you're tr- you're attempting something really it's, – it's something different from a normal act of public communication – you are opening the word of God. You are speaking in the place of God. And the only way you can do that is in a position of prayer and spiritual preparation to break the word of scripture before the waiting audience. And at the very moment when I think, yes, I have got this. I have done a great job today. I have literally diminished my ability to be used by God in preaching. Now, that's not to say God can't do that despite my pride, but as soon as I am open to seeing that pride as a beneficial thing, I've really removed myself from really being able to serve in that way. And so what I just find really dangerous is that Nietzsche's right in the sense that like we are trained to cultivate that humility from the earliest days, especially those of us who are good at public speaking. We quickly learn that we're not supposed to like – tell people, oh, you should be quiet now because I'm really good at talking. Like, we shut that down in kids real fast. Yeah. Um, but we're, where I think is, it's so dangerous to see pride as a good thing. I mean, right. that's, Nietzsche does. And rightfully so. We are worried about deluding ourselves about how good we are at something. Um, because we're worried about getting a hothead. We're worried about getting a big head. We're worried about uh, the excess of thinking that you are better than you actually are. And that's I think Nietzsche would concede that. But I think he would say we've gone the extra mile and said you can never even admit that you're good at anything. Um, And he would say that's also an opposite extreme. I'll leave you with an Aristotle quote here. I know we're running close on time. So this is what I think Nietzsche would agree with this on Aristotle, because Aristotle's from an earlier time, pre-Christian, before a lot of Christian deep sense of guilt takes hold. And so he says this in the Nicomachean Ethics. He says, uh, with regard to honor and dishonor, 
the mean, the golden mean you were talking about, the mean is proper pride. The excess is known as a sort of empty vanity, and the deficiency is undue humility. And as we said, liberality was related to magnificence, differing from it by dealing with small sums. So he says there's such a thing as excess of pride or empty vanity, which is what we're worried about here, right? When we when we tell people, don't get you know absorbed with your own self-worth or brag about your achievements. But he says there's also such a thing as undue humility, which is feeling like you're inferior when you're not or feeling like you can't do something when you actually can. And, and Aristotle would say, that's also excessive. You should also be okay with saying that you are. The key is not to never say you're good at something. The say is to say the key is to say I'm good at something when I'm good at something, and I'm not good at something when I'm not. Uh, and I think I think that's the co- corrective that that Nietzsche's trying to offer. Nietzsche's trying to offer, admittedly, an extreme alternative to what he thinks is an excess of guilt and self-loathing. Oh, I think that's helpful. Go back to Aristotle. Uh, well, Blake, let's close out with this. Um, uh, doesn't have to be anybody <coughs> that we've talked about today, but uh, do you have a favorite ethicist that you think is the most helpful for helping you actually make real life decisions? If I had to pick one person who offers a positive ethic, I would pick I would pick Aquinas. Um, of the options that we have selected here, he's by far the most uh, reasonable, I think, and the most generous in some ways. He accounts for contingency, but also has a pr- has principles. He is able to do things that uh, someone like Kant wouldn't tolerate. Uh, he can account for circumstances where Kant can't, but he's also not governed by mere consequences like Mill is. So I would I would prefer Aquinas, even though I'm not a medievalist, I'm not a scholastic. I don't consider myself a Thomist, but I have to admire his ethical system more, and it helps me in daily life better. Um, and I think it's more—it's able to take on more than other ethical systems. Um, if I were to—if—if if, if you ask me who thinks best about ethics as opposed to provide a positive ethic, ethical system, I think it's pretty obvious. I—I I tend to side with Nietzsche. Okay. That's fascinating. I would. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm gonna pick somebody off of this list. Um, I, I have. Uh, uh, I think I read. I read four of these five while we were at Hillsdale years ago. But in the years since then, I've become a big fan of Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard offers an ethical system that's like not even on the radar for these guys. All five of these, well, at least Aquinas, Aristotle, Kant, and Mill are all on the rational, or rational or empiricist or idealistic spectrum. Uh, they're they're all looking at objective ethics. Um, I'm not sure if Nietzsche was a familiar with Kierkegaard. I don't think they I were. did read Kierkegaard, and he was a fan. Okay, yeah. Uh, Kierkegaard is, I mean, he's so much more Christian than Nietzsche, which, which helps me out with him at least. He is, although no one in Kierkegaard's time thought he was a particularly exemplary Christian. Right, right. But be that as it may, um, (coughs) for Kierkegaard, it's all about the power of personal choices that are made over a lifetime. And he's the beginning of a subjective personalist ethic where for him, the key point is not keeping a list of do's and avoiding a list of don'ts. It's, uh, he, he, this is terrifying for the people in his day, I think, for to hear someone advocate this with literary skill and philosophical rigor. 
but he argued that you, you really can't force people to be ethical. Instead, ethics is all about each individual choosing who he or she wants to become over a lifetime, and that through your choices, you form yourself into a certain sort of person. And uh, now he he does he does I think he he lays that theory out in his book either or and then he uh in Fear and Trembling he does add a he adds oh, yeah. a hefty theological component to that which is really fun. Um I haven't, I, I haven't read either or but in Fear and Trembling especially if one is coming from a Christian perspective uh Fear and Trembling is very useful and I think in that text I don't know about either or but in that text he he opposes ethics with faith Mm -hmm. Uh, and and so i think in that sense you have to ask the question of what's your first starting point and i think ultimately kierkegaard would say there's something above ethics for the christian there he he would and in that one he um and i don't even know if he would say that they're opposed was he talks about the uh the night of infinite resignation is somebody who can reason himself to something and that the night of uh yeah the night of infinite resignation uh, he has examples from the classical tradition, and he has uh, he places himself in that position as well. Where we're really the he he calls the the hero of antiquity with uh, Agamemnon as his chief example is the the son of ethics in whom ethics is well pleased with like direct correlation to Jesus's incarnation. But there's something there. The knight of faith is the one who goes past that, and in going past that through faith, he ascends above ethics, and that in my mind, seems to resolve a lot of the tension between like, well, I've got a a buffet of ethics and I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Kierkegaard helps us get above all of that and say, here's the actual right. But of course, to get there, you have to agree with Kierkegaard that the right is found in the nature of God. And he also locates that beyond rational proof. It's why he calls it the absurd. (laughs) And it's all kinds of fun. Yeah, it's not metaphysics for him. It's the absurd. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't read Fear and Trembling since undergrad, but if I were, I'm pretty sure he uses the word ethics to say, you know, when Abraham is faced with the choice to kill Isaac because God has commanded him to sacrifice Isaac or not, I think he was, I think he explicitly says, if you use ethics to decide that, you won't kill Isaac. No, he does. Yeah. You use, but if you go before ethics, then you get what Abraham has. And that's terrifying. And he uses that example on purpose to terrify us. Yeah. Well, he doesn't, he, he doesn't think anybody can read. Uh, it's weird. His, his example of the night of faith is not something. I had a couple students who were reading. We read the whole thing, this, this last track. And uh, a couple students were like, well, so how do you get this faith? And I'm like, well, you, you, you kind of can't. You either have it or you don't. And I guess Very similar, you, you can understand why Nietzsche sympathizes with him. He would say either you're either you have a life affirming attitude or you don't. Yeah, it's a, they're They are much more uh, determinist in their thinking in a lot of ways. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, Blake, thank you so much for uh, joining us for a uh, coronavirus quarantine uh, episode of uh, What's the Res? And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this episode. We hope that you've enjoyed. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us to uh, give us your thoughts on this episode, let us know who your favorite ethicist is or who you'd like to go to for LD Frameworks. You can get in touch with us in a variety of ways. You can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit with the handle at whatstheres underscore. 
You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash what's the res. We appreciate all of your support and we look forward to joining you next time. Until then, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Thank you.